Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. From Nola Pizza in the Nola Brewing Tap Room on Chapatula Street in New Orleans, we're out to lunch with Peter Rashidi, Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style. Hi, I'm Peter Rashidi. Welcome to Out to Lunch. When Louisiana native and New Orleans resident James Carville was working on Bill Clinton's campaign for president, he famously scribbled a note and pinned it to the wall. The note read, it's the economy, stupid. The implication being that no matter what people say they care about, if they don't have enough money, nothing else matters. Here in New Orleans for decades, topping the list of things people say they care about, usually right under crime, is education. We also know that with a few exceptions, the more education you have, the more money you make. So today, Carville's famous advice could be, it's education, stupid. By education, we typically think of elementary school and high school, but lately we've come to learn that lifelong patterns with poor education outcomes start earlier. Studies show that children under the age of four who receive quality early childhood education are more likely to graduate high school. They earn more money and they're more likely to own their own homes. If you're a parent with resources, you can pay for quality early childhood education. If you don't have the means to do that, you can send your children to publicly funded preschools. But in New Orleans, 70% of low-income children under the age of four don't have access to publicly funded quality early childhood education. An organization called Agenda for Children is trying to change that. Agenda for Children works to train early childhood education teachers and to create access to early childhood education for all New Orleans families. The CEO of Agenda for Children is Jen Roberts. Jen, welcome Out to Lunch. Thanks for having me, Peter. This is not to say that all we have to do in New Orleans is to get kids under four in a good preschool and in a generation, everything will magically improve. We still need good high schools. Here in New Orleans, a quote unquote good high school is typically one you pay to go to or if you're a kid who's focused and driven enough, you can test into one of the few high-performing public high schools. But kids growing up in less than ideal circumstances are typically not in either of those categories. That's where an organization called Rooted School Foundation comes in. Rooted School Foundation focuses on at-risk kids who are talented or smart enough to change their lives. It gives students a way to graduate high school while also earning industry credentials and fields with high growth potential so that they can go from high school to college or a career into a growing field. This is not some sort of theoretical pie-in-the-sky concept. In June 2021, Rooted New Orleans graduated its inaugural class of 38 students. 54% of them went to a four-year college and between them they hauled in a million dollars worth of merit grants and scholarships. The visionary founder and CEO of Rooted School Foundation is Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, welcome out to lunch. Peter, thank you for having me. Jen, the COVID pandemic was responsible for all kinds of changes in the business world from the advent of working from home to the uh, employment shakeup that's now come to be known as the Great Resignation, but perhaps nothing 
was more of a COVID-era wake-up call than the discovery of the abysmal state of childcare. Uh, since then, both nationwide and locally, we're paying a lot more attention to making early childhood education work for working families. So I have two questions for you about where we are with all that. One, is any of this newfound funding finding its way to local New Orleans early childhood education? And secondly, if it is, do we have the schools and teachers in place to spend it on? That's a great question. Um, so we've been very fortunate to get a lot of attention and a lot of additional resources here in the state. That's been the result of federal investment, but it's also been the result of local investment, both at the state level and at the municipal level here in Orleans Parish. So we've been able to, to really galvanize some of these resources. And you asked whether or not they were making it into the classrooms. And the reality is for the first time, yes. Um, we're seeing you know, lots of folks be able to take advantage of things like Small Business Association grants so, you know, many of our child care centers are owned by small businesses. So, you know, we had workforce dollars that were going in, but you also had education dollars that were going in. So typically before COVID, you might be paid based on the number of children attending or the number of children enrolled. But because of the dire straits of our child care centers, the state made really important decisions to do two things. One, raise the amount of money that they were receiving for each child so that it kind of made it a little bit closer to market rate. And the second thing that they did was they provided stimulus grants um, and provided direct cash support to child care centers to keep them open. This was incredibly important during the pandemic when, you know, Frontline workers and essential personnel needed desperately places to put their children while they were working very long hours uh, on the front line. Now, Jonathan, you've started sending kids to college who were otherwise headed for nowhere good. In some cases, you're not just changing lives, you're saving lives. Now, other educators are following your model. Rooted schools are opening in Indianapolis, Nevada, and Washington State. The evidence of the success of your vision is there for everyone to see, but it wasn't like that in the beginning. To get Rooted School Foundation established, before you had anything tangible, you had to win the trust of at-risk kids, and you had to sell this idea to CEOs of companies as different as Entergy and Lucid. Every good salesperson has a closer, a sentence or a statement that closes the deal and changes the person they're talking to from intrigued to in. What was your closer to kids and to CEOs that got them to buy into your vision? The close was harassing them every week over email. <laughs> um, the question we asked very early on is, can kids do adult work? And if that wasn't enough, there is a room in Rooted School, and this is in every Rooted School, called the Flight Room. And um, the Flight Room uh, was named after a Samsung commercial where there was an ostrich that essentially taught itself how to fly. Now we all know ostriches cannot fly, but the idea being that everything is impossible, impossible until somebody does it. And through these weekly uh, emails that I would send to people, um, that was the charge, is that if we are to reimagine, rethink what public education might look like in a city like New Orleans, um, um, how can we, CEO of Lucid, uh, Intergy, uh, and other partners uh, figure out how to build a new possible. And, and Jen, we, you know, it's a business show, and there are two kinds of businesses in that story you were just telling. You've got the um, trying to convince businesses that by taking care of their workers with childcare, they can 
first of all, get them back into work and, uh, uh, and it'd be, make them more, more of attractive as a company and make them look like better corporate citizens, obviously. But it's also the fact that um, a lot of people wouldn't think about it, but these childhood uh, centers are owned by entrepreneurs. They sure are. That's Many of them, almost 95% of them are owned by black women. And so do you help on that end too? Because I mean, obviously I would think these are people that really are good people that want to make a difference, but maybe they didn't, probably didn't have any business background. Well, it's interesting. You know, many of our childcare centers are intergenerational. So it's really a, an industry that started with someone's grandmother who then passed on the business to their mother who passed on the business to their daughter. Because people, for the most part, aren't getting into childcare for money. <laughs> They're not necessarily <laughs> very big profitable businesses. And part of the reason for that is that essentially it's very hard to charge what the true cost is because the market can't support it. To give you an example, for, for just the cost alone, it costs about $18,000 a year to educate an infant. So a very small child birth Whoa. to about 12 months old. Well, I don't know about you, but most middle income families and certainly low income families can't afford that. That's expensive private school numbers. Correct. And so, you know, Agenda for Children works alongside those parties, as you said. The first thing is that we help corporate partners, uh, especially now post COVID, who are interested in starting either on-site childcare or figuring out how to offer it more directly to their employees, either through stipends or through some sort of subsidization program. And then we also work directly with those directors and those business owners who want to figure out how to really operate both a strong financial business, but also one that doesn't sacrifice quality. The quality component here is, is really the most. It's one thing to have a profitable business, but if it's at the expense of essentially cutting corners on how much you pay your employees, or you know, cutting down on what curriculum you can offer, then that's not really doing anybody any service. And, and Jonathan, is there a physical high school here that, that we should be thinking about here? There is a physical high okay. school here, and we have just relocated to our new campus, which is Suno's College of Education in Pontchartrain Park. Right. And They're actually going to open up a child care center there as well. Really? They're, they're trying to figure that out. And you weren't going to do that until you came on the show, and it has changed both of your lives. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll tell people that later. But it is, uh, hey, um, how did these other cities see what you were doing, and what was it that, that grabbed them? In most of the cities that we work in, there's typically a $40,000 to $50,000 gap in the annual household income between the city's white families and the city's black families. On top of that, if we think beyond annual household income, uh, the latest projections show that unless something shifts in U.S. policy would take more than two centuries uh, for the average white black family to obtain the same amount of wealth as the average white family in this country. In the communities that we now partner with, many believe that that's wrong and that that shouldn't be the case. And so many of them are aware of what Rooted School in New Orleans set out to do, which is to reduce, if not close, those gaps and looked for concrete solutions for how they might do it. And so reached out and after doing diligence on both sides, figured that we there was a pathway to partner more significantly in the long term to prove new possibles in the region. And Jonathan, you're doing something that is uh, is getting in the middle of kind of an argument, the, the argument that not everybody should go to college and maybe they, 
Uh, for instance, when I talk to people in the trades, they can't seem to find anyone. But you created a hybrid. You At graduation, they have a choice. That was obviously one of the, the big things that made this, right? It's a defining factor of every rooted school. We call it the four-year promise, where after four years of being with us, every child has a chance at both an acceptance to a four-year college in one hand and a full-time job offer in the other. And um, five years ago, uh, there was no proof point for that being possible locally and arguably nationally. And very proud to say after last summer, uh, there is one and that exists in New Orleans. And Jen, is there, um, are, are early childhood centers, are they, um, are they regulated? Yes, they're heavily licensed. They're probably one of the most heavily regulated and licensed businesses that you can have in the state of Louisiana and nationally. A great example of that is just how many adults you need in each classroom. So for example, it gets, you know, you have to regulate around the number of adults per student, so those ratios, you get regulated around your facility and safety, you get regulated, um, you know, with both the state uh, zoning requirements as well as um, local you know, requirements. So for example, can you locate a sink next to that bathroom or do they need to have a specific number of feet apart to accommodate safety of children? My kids were often put in their cubby. Yes, we do get that a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Jonathan, is there anything in sponsorships for, for a Lucid or Entergy or are they just trying to be good citizens? Going back to your earlier question, Peter, around what is the close, uh, the goal for us is that we realize that investing in a younger, non-traditional talent pipeline is a bet for companies, just as much as it's a bet for these young people. And so we've tried to create, create as few barriers of resistance to that sale. And so the ultimate investment is hiring them and paying them not only a family-sustaining wage, but offering access to full health care and benefits that they would offer to any normal staff member on their team. Um, and in exchange, uh, we collect a small sourcing fee that allows us to um, operationalize our supports around that student in a, an ultimately high-touch model to ensure that that uh, young person is uh, ultimately a, a value add and is contributing a return on that company's investment in that year. And Jonathan, I can imagine there'd be a lot of demand for what you're doing. How do you, how do you select the ones you, you bring in? Well, it turns out, Peter, there's a lot of demand on the student side. And while there uh, theoretically is a lot of demand on the employer side, we find that a lot of employers at this stage in the change management process are, are actually quite uh, hesitant to, to make that bet. And there's a lot of questions around where that hesitancy comes from. We tend to do this in communities uh, where uh, the, 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 the students are coming from schools that, uh, you know, employers largely may not be sending their own kids to, right? And so there's a lot of doubt and questions mark about the quality of this talent or capacity of this talent. And so um, while there's theoretically a lot of demand, um, it's one thing to translate that demand to uh, actual commitments because of the, the change management process that's underway. And Jen, are parents given vouchers or how do they get to pay for public childcare? 
So publicly funded childcare, there's a lot of different types of programs, but essentially the most popular way is one of two ways. The first is there's a state program called childcare assistance where families do in fact receive a scholarship that they can kind of shop around with, so much like a voucher. The second major thing is something called contracted seats. So organizations like Agenda for Children will get money from the state and we directly enter into MOUs and contracts with individual childcare centers for a specific number of seats. So in those cases, money doesn't cross the, the, the family's pocketbook, but instead we contract for that child's uh, education directly with that child care center. And then all the parent has to do is register, ensure that they're eligible, verify their income, and then show up. And you're statewide? We are the 13 parishes across Southeast Louisiana, um, but we, we do have quite a big uh, lift here. <laughs> yeah. And you've got a, so you have rural and urban markets, I guess. That, certainly. There's certainly and differences there. Absolutely. And you can imagine also post-Hurricane Ida, um, you know, most of the affected regions were in our service area. And so there's a lot of rebuilding also going about trying to figure out what does childcare need to look like in those communities and what do families really want as they think about rebuilding. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with Jen Roberts from Agenda for Children. They focus on early childhood education and Jonathan Johnson from the Visionary High School System Rooted School Foundation. Jonathan, you brought up something separately, but I don't think most people get it. You were talking about uh, the wealth gap, the racial wealth gap, and one of it, one side of it is income, and the part that's even more dramatic is the wealth side. And we've seen... Uh, We've had people come on the show to talk about like even the, the GI Bill after the war was was uh, skewed against uh, uh, you know skewed against uh, black soldiers. Um, what do you do on the wealth side? Is there a do you just view that when the income gets better, the wealth will follow, or what do you think? My thought right now is that we need to set a goal, a very ambitious goal as. Uh, local community and then arguably nationally and um, that goal should be uh, in, in, in our thinking um, centered around um, the more than uh, 10x um, gap that exists between the median wealth of black households to white households in this country and we should set a target that perhaps is multi-decades out from now that suggests in that time span, we wanna make a sizable reducement, kind of in the same way we've made a commitment to net zero carbon emissions by 2050 in this country. Um, if, if, if we can do that for the environment, we can certainly do that for wealth gap. And then translate what that goal is from a wealth context to uh, bite-sized targets that we can reach within smaller increments of time. There are a lot of economists uh, that, that are beginning to come out um, arguing for, for something of that sort. We, we tend to follow Opportunity Insights team out of Harvard University with Raj Chetty, where we're uh, thinking, hey, at, at five years out from now, 10 years out from now, what can we meaningfully do? And so that's what I think the answer is. And then just by extension, Peter, something that is of interest to us is also the emergence of surrogate indexes. So this notion that uh, we can predict longer range outcomes by uh, nearer term inputs. And so uh, inputs uh, such as, or indexes such as uh, living wage jobs or a certain credit score by a certain age can actually become multi-decade predictors of a, of a uh, societally beneficial impact. 
and uh, in Rooted's world, we, we think we should be more creatively leveraging those. And Jen, this is sort of a related question is, America is so short-term oriented, and you, uh, at least, <laughs> at least uh, Jonathan's you know, kids are coming out and they're ready to go. Is it a tough sell? I mean, I, I have read that the first thousand days of a kid's life determines a lot of what it's going. The foundation of a house. Right? Yeah, you don't right. Have a good that's right. There you, you can't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> good construction metaphor. People like that. You know? Is <laughs> what, uh, is it is it tough to um, oh politicians, people you're trying to convince to sell them on something that they won't see the difference for a long time? Yes and no. You know, I think many people love children, right? It's it's a hard issue to it come out be. against, right? right? Where, you know, people people want to support kids and they want to ensure that young people have all the opportunities. But it's really hard to, you know, negotiate some of these bigger investments when, you know, the short-term concerns, right? When you can't drive down a road or you potentially can't, you know, you're worried about crime or you're worried about, you know, your day-to-day. And so what we find is that everybody has and everybody knows a young child in their life, right, that, that's important to them. And we have found that in most cases, when people really think about those important adults to those children in those first thousand days, they realize that, you know, well, maybe I was that person for a young person and therefore have a more, more, more inclination to want to support it. But it certainly is a little bit different than, than Jonathan's work. You know, we're, we're asking you to make a major investment over several decades. And, uh, you know, that can, that can be a little bit of a challenge to some people. Jonathan, the other thing I was thinking about when you were answering that last question is, um, is when you mentioned people going to college, because I, I teach at Tulane University, so I, this is kind of a big issue to people, but what about retention? Like, um, once you send them into college, um, they're probably the first person in their family to go to school. They, uh, they get to a college where a lot of people aren't like them. Um, do you keep records of how they're doing? Uh, we do, um, and um, th- we also are connected to uh, philanthropic partners who do. So one example of this that was quite interesting, Charter School Growth Fund, which happens to be a national funder of charter school growth in the United States, uh, released a report recently where they showed uh, uh, essentially an amalgamation of, of data uh, around high schools in their portfolio of schools. And in those high schools, um, they were showing the rates at which they are sending students not only to, but through college. Uh, and the, the rates at which that their cohorts are graduating college um, hover around four, uh, 45 to 50% um, as, a, as, a, as a cohort. And these are disproportionately black, Latinx, students of color or BIPOC students, uh, whatever you're comfortable saying. And so um, these students are also taking a disproportionate debt burden. And so um, what do you, what say we as a community uh, of efforts to not only send these young people to college, but also send them to college knowing that they are going to take on a, a burden that they may or may not be able to pay until many decades out um, is this still a viable path to financial freedom? And I think that that is a, a question that is maybe for the first time in our country's history, uh, a question that is open for debate and, 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 dis- and meaningful discussion. You know, but so Jonathan, you train 
and work with young people to get them into high wage, high demand careers, right? And in our case, we have a little bit of a challenge because we have high demand, but not high wage. And so one of the things that I've been really trying to think about is we think about, you referenced the GI Bill earlier, and we think about what happened with nursing, right? So nursing, you know, at World War I and World War II, it wasn't until then that people really started to see nursing as a real profession. You know, it started to increase wages. And I think about this, like what was it that made nursing a real gateway to the middle class? And how do we start to replicate some of those things in the early ed space? Because, you know, we knew that there was a, an international demand for nurses at the time. We knew that there was public and private money, but there was a, a real call to action. So I'm curious if you have any ideas on, on how to make this a real call to action to, to get into early education from a workforce issue. And I haven't figured it out yet, so, you yeah. know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All answers uh, are on the table. You know, my answer over pizza and beers is, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think the answer lies in um, framing the craft as a craft and not babysitting. Um, I think when, so I think of like Stanford's D school as a, 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 a yeah, interesting, school. yeah, interesting example of, you know, how you lead uh, change or lead in unconventional ways. And I, I think that sort of frame for thinking uh, ought to be applied or should be applied and tested, piloted in, in, in an early uh, education space, and that by doing so it rebrands um, the work in a way that will be attractive to um, the sort of next chapter of the profession. And Jen, is there uh, a designation that one gets for doing this? Yeah, so you, you have to get credentialed, um, but it's a, it's a fairly you know, work-life friendly way to do it. You can typically get your certification while you're in um, the classroom, you know? And so it, it's not in that respect challenging, but it is, you know, I don't know if anybody wants to listen to, you know, young children cry for 12 hours a day, right? And so you're kind of self-selecting. <laughs> Sign me in. up. Though, um, though if I can add, um, Jen, you know, it's interesting, we started a pilot with the University of Pennsylvania's Center for Guaranteed Income, Youth Cash Transfer Study, mm -hmm. where we give students $50 a week. It's like a universal school, basic income. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. Just to explore what happens when you give young people cash at certain inflection points points in their yep. lives. And I would be interested, you know, for a teacher who maybe uh, frets at uh, hearing young people cry every day um, under the, the traditional construct, but what if they knew they were there and that young person or their, that person's family was getting 50 to $100 a week uh, as a result of maybe some conditions or maybe unconditional, like would that change the framework of the work uh, around it, you know, learning your ABs? A, B's, and C's to, wow, we're, we're actually accelerating upward economic mobility in a meaningful way. Um, I think you would look at the profession differently or someone might. And Jonathan, I wanted to ask you this earlier, is you talk about high potential careers. Um, what are they? <laughs> Janet asked me to ask this. Yeah, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I, the, the honest answer is that it's changing. Uh, and certainly the pandemic has, uh, has had a lot to do with that. What, what we're interested in rooted, uh, just based on our learnings and feedback from companies, is what are the sort of basic and middle skill jobs that don't require four-year college degrees but something more than a high school diploma that we can position 
our city's youth for on a faster timeline than what um, what their typical college-going peer might be. Um, that that's kind of our goal. And, and Peter, interestingly enough. Uh, going back to the Opportunity Insights team, they uh, have a big data tool called the Opportunity Atlas where you can see the average household income of a person growing up in a city by the time they turn 35. And in New Orleans, it happens to be $30,000. So by the time you are 35 years old in New Orleans, the average New Orleanian is bringing an annual household income of $30,000, which we know can't send our kids to the daycare that Jen is describing certainly cannot put them on a path toward accumulating a multi-generational wealth. And so we say, hey, what if by the time you're 18 or at least 22, you, you, you get more than that? Like you get 30,000 or you get more, which we're proving slowly. Um, what then can we say 10 years from now when they're 35 or beyond? That's, that's, that's how we are thinking about the multi-decade approach to this. Jen, you know, for years here, the, we had so many private schools, and people would say, oh, I, why would I care about, oh, actually, either of you, why would I care my kids go to private school? Is that a tough, um, tough hurdle to, to face? I mean, do they understand, like, what, what effect it has on them down the road? I think, I, I think we're um, increasingly realizing that. And I think that, especially since the pandemic, education has been frequently cited as a public good um, and not a private opportunity. And so I, I do think certainly, you know, depending on what's going on in individuals' lives, they are in fact seeing early ed and high quality early, you know, care and education and high school programming as pretty instrumental to, you know, whether or not they're going to have safe drivers on the road, whether or not there's going to be a skilled workforce to repair said road, things like that. In music and fashion, generational changes are easy to see. In business, those changes are not so obvious, but they definitely exist. The current generation is emphasizing good corporate citizenship and work-life balance. Companies are being asked to take socially responsible positions and they're no longer seen as profit centers responsible only to shareholders. And work is no longer regarded as a monastic calling to which you have to dedicate your entire life to succeed. Instead, a company is more prized if it's able to integrate into the wider community and a job is more prized if it allows you to live a balanced life. Jen, early childhood education is the first step on the path to a parent creating work-life balance. And Jonathan, you're giving companies who partner with you an opportunity to become great corporate citizens. Both of you are involved with organizations that at first glance might seem far removed from business, but that on a closer examination are vitally in intertwined with our local economy. Jen and Jonathan, thank you both for everything you're doing, and thank you for taking the time to join me today on Out to Lunch. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for having us, Peter. My guests on Out to Lunch today have been Jen Roberts, CEO of Agenda for Children, and Jonathan Johnson, the founder and CEO of Rooted School Foundation. We edited this show to fit into our time slot here on WWNO. You can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Jen and Jonathan and kids from preschool to college by listening to the Out to Lunch podcast. You can find and subscribe to the Out to Lunch podcast on your podcast app and on our website, itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from the show on itsneworleans.com and on our Out to Lunch social media. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at lafleurphoto.com. 
Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. I'm Peter Rashidi. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the lunch table for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch. Out to Lunch was recorded live over lunch at the NOLA Brewing Tap Room, 3001 Chapatula Street, open seven days a week. NOLA Brewing Tap Room has a wide variety of craft beers and authentic hand-tossed New York-style city pizza by NOLA Pizza. More information is at nolabrewing.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Three Roll Estate Craft Rum Distillery, crafting premium rum from their own Louisiana sugarcane. Three Roll is cane to glass. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. And by the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. <laughs>